Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is issue number 30 of volume 12, which corresponds with the week of July 11th, 2022. First, let's talk about some free thoughts. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, Lao Tzu. For me, that is so true. One step at a time is all that it takes to make change. Change doesn't have to be fast. It just needs to happen. But in the end, you still need to take that first step. In the podcast, number 23 is up with Dewey Freeman, An Uncivilized Journey, part three. Hope you take a moment to listen to that episode where Dewey Freeman, who is a sage, sage, sage gentleman, gives incredible wisdom for men in their relationships, understanding where the breakpoints and blind spots are that interrupt men's lives with women and their kids and coworkers and all of the above. So this week, we're going to talk specifically about breastfeeding. The American Academy of Pediatrics recently produced a long-awaited and new guidelines that was necessary and forward thinking, which is what we've been looking for for quite some time. The AAP recommends at this time exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. There's no need to introduce infant formula or other sources of nutrition for most infants during this time. Beyond six months, breastfeeding should be maintained along with a nutritious set of complementary foods in their whole or minimally processed form. The AAP recommends that birth hospitals or centers implement maternity care practices that improve breastfeeding initiation, duration, and exclusivity. Couldn't agree more. There are continued benefits from breastfeeding beyond one year and up to two years, especially in the mother. Long-term breastfeeding is associated with protections against diabetes, high blood pressure, and cancers of the breast and ovaries. This is a slightly new inclination for the AAP to push breastfeeding a little bit farther, which I again agree with in those mothers that wish to breastfeed longer because there are more health benefits to the child and to the mother. Mothers who breastfeed beyond the first year need support from their medical care providers as well as protections against workplace barriers that could impede their ability to continue to breastfeed. The AP also states that policies that protect breastfeeding, including universal, universal paid maternity leave, the right of a woman to breastfeed in public, insurance coverage for lactation support and breast pumps, on-site child care, universal workplace break time with a clean, private location for expressing milk, the right to feed expressed milk, and the right to breastfeed in child care centers and lactation rooms in schools are all essential to supporting families and sustaining feeding. Couldn't agree more there, too. We need to support the best source of nutrition for children, full stop. In modern society, formula is unfortunately too easy to obtain, too easy to provide, and has very limited barriers, making it often the preferred fuel source for children, even though it is well known to be significantly inferior. I would add these statements to the AAP statements. Mothers should be supported with education and access to high quality foods that support a high quality breast milk. 
Mothers should be allowed to have access to probiotics prenatally like Avivo to help with breast milk metabolism post-birth if they are unable to afford it. We should continue to promote a healthy maternal microbiome through diet and lifestyle education based on emerging data every year. The state government should directly help mothers receive lactation support through outpatient clinics or health departments. With the amount of money that would be saved on not using formulas, these costs should be minimal in comparison. Mothers should be supported through education on how to avoid chemicals in their environment that could adversely affect a child as a pass-through in breast milk. I am most pleased by these changes as the dynamic nature of breast milk is far beyond anything the formula can ever try to do and be an equivalent food source. Here's a list of added benefits that breast milk has over formula. One, reduces the risk of illness from most forms of bacterial and viral diseases of infancy. Two, reduced rates of sudden infant death syndrome by up to 30%. Three, 50% reduction in necrotizing enterocolitis, a life-threatening intestinal disease of preterm infants. Four, reduces hospital readmission rates for preterm infants during the first year of life. Five, better neurodevelopmental outcomes. Six, infant mortality rates are reduced by 21%. Seven, provides protection against the development of allergies, especially with a strong family history of allergic disease. Eight, reductions in inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease. Nine, reductions in autoimmune diabetes and other forms of autoimmunity. Reductions in cancer. 10, reduced metabolic disease and excess weight gain. I have two other major thoughts. One, fats make up 4% of breast milk and the critical fat is the polyunsaturated fats known as PUFA, linoleic acid and alpha-linoleic acid, the most important of which is EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, and docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, which are precursor molecules to resolvents and protectants, which decrease inflammation broadly after an insult, especially in the brain. 80% of the brain's DHA is acquired from the 26th week of gestation until the child is born. Premature babies lack the enzymes to convert the PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, to the form DHA and EPA, which poses a great risk to these early babies. Mothers provide these fats during pregnancy through breast milk, assuming that she herself has adequate stores. Thus, it is critical that premature infants receive some breast milk to decrease and prevent the risk of developing necrotizing enterocolitis from the dysbiosis. And I think these fats have many, many, many other very important functions in the body of a child. Number two, let's look at the microbiome here as well, as it is a major source of human-derived health. Breast milk provides for over 220 milk oligosaccharides, HMOs, or small sugars that are indigestible by the human infant, but are digestible by the infant's intestinal microbes bacteria. This is an incredible evolutionary task for a mother to use her energy to make a food source for bacteria that is roughly 15% of the breast milk composition. The reason is clear. There is a profound symbiosis between a human and the intestinal microbiome. As discussed in the podcast with Dr. Shafizada, the specific intestinal microbes that are present 
in the intestines will dictate which HMOs are metabolized and thus conferring health benefits to the child. Breast milk is loaded with diverse HMOs and are giving a child the best health outcomes. Formula has recently added two HMOs out of the 220 in order to meet this scientific health understanding. Thus, with a lack of diversity, it is only a matter of time until we learn about all the missing benefits of the other HMOs in breast milk. To get more on this topic, there is a newsletter on donor breast milk safety and use at a link on the Salisbury Pediatric Associate newsletter for this week of July 11th, issue number 30. There's a link to the, the newsletter on breast milk in general. And there are links to the two podcasts, the one on breastfeeding and breast milk with Dr. E.A. Quinn, and also the one on HMO and micro, microbiomes with Dr. Shafazada. So for me, I think the AAP did a good job of updating their information. I think it would be really nice if the government started to put into place incentives for parents to breastfeed over formula feed. And I think it'd be nice to see just our natural return to what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. All right, section two, curiosity. Why is it a roadway to learning? What does curiosity have to do with learning? Why should you, the parent, care? The simple answer is that curiosity often separates the explorer from the stationary person, the trailblazer from the follower. Each one in and of themselves is okay and has value. The follower works in the right context. The explorer also works in the right context. It would be impossible to have all of one or none of the other. That being said, what is the point? The point is simple. Is your child hampered from exploring through curiosity and imagination because of passive default pathway of social media, gaming, and streaming movies? If the answer to this question is yes, then you have an actual place to intervene. Again, whether your child becomes one archetype or the other matters not. However, if the pathway is disrupted by passive existence, then there will be a loss of possibility. The flip side would also be an issue if everyone was unduly influenced down the curiosity-only path. I think back to my childhood and choice. My parents did not allow ad nauseum screen time. There was outdoor play, mostly. There was the expectation that boredom was my problem. What I did with that time was up to me. Be curious, maybe. Be passive, maybe. It truly depended on the day my food, my, and friend exposure. But there was a choice to be made without the undue influence of the ubiquitous screen. The modern world is a massive struggle for kids and parents because of the mobility of these passive devices allowing them to follow a child everywhere, potentially harming and hampering one side of the developmental process. Think about when you go out to a restaurant and you look down at a family of four, two parents talking, two children watching screens. That makes my skin crawl when I see it. It is very disturbing to me that there is no social construct where everyone is experiencing the world together. Screens do not help these children in almost all of these instances. Be aware of this reality as your children start to have access to more and more screens and try and help them grow past that default pathway of passive existence. Section three, single nucleotide polymorphisms. That's a really big word. Short version of it is SNP. 
What do they matter? What are they? I think this is going to be important for multiple newsletters in the future. Uh, it's been discussed a little bit in the past, but I'm going to go on a deeper dive here. The actual definition of a single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP, is a variation at a single position in a DNA sequence among individuals. Recall that the DNA sequence is formed from a chain of four nucleotide base bases, A, C, G, and T, and these stand for amino acids. If more than 1% of a population does not carry the same nucleotide at the specific position in the DNA sequence, then this variation be classified as a SNP. If a SNP occurs within a gene that transcribes into some form of protein that's important, then the gene is described as having one or more allele. In these cases, SNPs may lead to variations in the amino acid sequence, and then these SNPs, however, are not just associated with genes, but they can also be associated with non-coding regions of DNA, which are the part that we call the epigenome, and these SNPs can have effects. Although a particular SNP may not cause a disorder, some SNPs are associated with certain diseases. These associations allow scientists to look for SNPs in order to evaluate an individual's genetic predisposition to develop a disease. In addition, if certain SNPs are known to be associated with a trait, then scientists may examine stretches of DNA near these SNPs in an attempt to identify the gene or genes responsible for that trait. This comes to us from Nature Education. Why is this relevant to you and your family? As we gain genomic knowledge regarding what a genetic code does and what it is doing inside a specific cell inside our body, then we have a learning point from which to assess what a SNP could do for certain genes expression. For example, there are genes associated with apolipoprotein E, a carrier protein on fat-carrying molecules called lipoproteins. This APOE has a designation of 2, 3, or 4 based on the SNP. And these genes are associated with Alzheimer's disease, specifically with the SNP APOE4, if you have two copies, found more frequently. This is a direct association and is helping us learn how to mitigate the risk potentially through diet and lifestyle changes in those individuals who carry these SNPs. On the other hand, Tolic receptor 4, TLR4, which is associated with immune pathogen assessment and response, is a pattern recognition receptor. The TLR4 activity was believed to be related to worsened COVID risk. If a person had an altered copy of one of the two genes, then the function of the gene could be significantly reduced, leading to worsened viral surveillance capabilities against SARS-2. This knowledge could help us understand who was at a higher risk of disease like SARS-2 when it was studied in vivo, and it turned out to be minimal to moderate risk for severe disease. This came to us from Taha et al. and Abodunya et al., which is A-B-O-U-D-O-U-N-Y-A. Both of those were in 2021. For a deep dive into current SNPs and COVID risk, read the Frontiers in Immunology article by Gromush, G-R-O-L-M-U-S-C, link in the newsletter. Overall, we want to pay attention to our genes in the future as this information becomes available to us. 
I have run these tests on myself and found them to be very useful information for disease mitigation over time. This is just an FYI for all of you. However, if you want to start this process now, you would need to get a 23andMe test run, take the raw genetic material to a website like Found My Fitness or Pure Genomics and merge them in their online platforms. Take the information to a genomic literate provider to review with you and to start understanding what you can make change in your life to maybe mitigate these risks. For me, this is all about information that's still learning and growing. In the newsletter, you can see a new recipe for a way to make pan sheet roasted vegetables with a little bit of bacon. Pretty delicious stuff. Well, that's all for this week. As always, hug those kids and have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.